Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to the 143rd episode of the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. In Nashville, Tennessee, I'm the professor, Matt Perkins. And a short hop, skip, and a jump across the Harpeth River for me here in the Music City. It's our own offensive coordinator, the coach, Corey Burton. What's up, guys? Uh, I, you know, I'm excited to be back. Our RPO show is actually getting a lot of good traction and feedback. I've been tweeting the crap out of it, so... Uh, we're doing a good job here in the offseason. Let's keep the ball rolling. All right. Well, we can't keep the ball rolling without our third amigo in the second city, a man who uh, is un- unfortunately sitting shiva this evening. It is our intrepid blogger from Big Ten and Counting, Josh Cook. Yeah, my, uh, my grandpa passed away over the night uh, in his sleep. That's the best you can ask for in a circumstance like that. Um, bring it up because – we're a family here on Illegal Motion, but also we're a football podcast. And he was a, a diehard football fan. He, he grew up in Council Bluffs, Iowa. That's way over on the western border near Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, played high school basketball, but always really loved football. Went to the University of Iowa both as an undergrad and for law school. And basically, from the time he was a student until the day he died, he had season tickets for Iowa football. And uh, seldom missed a game, drove from Des Moines, the state capital, about two hours away, uh, pretty much every home game. And just loved Iowa football. And I saw the team win the national title in 58, saw, you know, the the demise in the 60s and 70s and the rebirth with Hayden Fry and and right up to the Ferentz era. He, uh, you know, he saw all the Iowa greats outside of Niall Kinnick, really. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, just, just an awesome guy to watch games with. And we actually, you know, it, um, until he, he moved his seats up into the, the fancy box as he got older, uh, but before that when he was sitting – in the crowd amongst the regular folk, um, you know, we always sat with him because he had better seats than my, my dad's seniority for the for uh, Kinex. So um, watched many, many a game sitting right next to that guy. Uh, Josh, I even had the pleasure of uh, sitting at a game with you and your father and your grandfather once uh, for a Wisconsin-Iowa game. Uh, gosh, yeah. it must have been almost 15 years ago now. Um, Probably, yeah. And, uh, you know, he was as in tune with what was happening uh, in the game as anyone else in that entire stadium. And, even, I mean, even then he was in his, you know, what, early 80s probably, um, you know, late 70s, early 80s. And, yeah. you know, he knew um, – not just every single player on the Iowa team, but most of the players from the Wisconsin team, which was the game that obviously we were at. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he just, he knew everything. He was a fountain of information and always smiling and always telling great stories. And he will be sorely, sorely missed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you for your kind words on that, Matt. 
Oh yeah, of course. I'm, you know, obviously I was very saddened to hear, uh, to hear that when you, when you shared that with us earlier today. So I'm glad that you could at least, uh, spend a little time, uh, paying tribute to him here at the top of the show. So, I mean, obviously, uh, football and, you know, the NFL has that tacky slogan, you know, football is family or whatever not, but in, in a lot of ways it really is because I, I mean, I know for, you know, all of us have, you know, some, you know, obviously very close, uh, and important memories to do with, you know, football and your, you know, immediate or extended family. And we're, we're a family here on the podcast and, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad you shared that with us, Josh, even though it is obviously a tough time for you and your family, we're all thinking about you. Um, and so there's no real good way to segue into, uh, what is going to be our main topic tonight. So I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And tonight we are talking about title nine. Uh, and obviously, uh, within the past couple of years in college football, uh, there has been a, an epidemic uh, that has come to the surface, uh, cons- uh, cons- uh, considering all of the problems that have been going on with uh, sexual assault and sexual violence uh, on campuses, especially in and around football programs. So we've decided to take tonight to talk a little bit more about Title IX and the implications behind that. And Josh, you are going to lead our discussion, so I will uh, cede the floor to you. Yeah, um, I-, I was familiar with it a little bit. It's some more research between our two shows. I have just barely scratched the surface, so I don't know how many questions I can answer, but among the three of us, I potentially know the most. Uh, we'll see, but I guess just to start with the background that was uh, you know, passed in the 70s, part of the, the wave of civil rights movement, equal rights amendment, um, attempted to be passed, things like that. Um, and the letter of Title IX is no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So that is schools, and it's mostly thought of on our show, since we're a college football podcast, to do with colleges, uh, but really this goes all the way down to elementary school. Um, Title IX is basically saying if you're man, woman, or other, uh, you have an equal right to going to school, going about your business, including participating in activities, uh, and again, for the purposes of our show, that has to do with sports. So obviously one of the, you know, one of the big things that first came out of Title IX was the, uh, basically the demand for equity in, uh, in NCAA athletics and uh, making it so that um, if you had, basically, obviously there are different provisions and loopholes and whatnot, but basically um, a university needs to have an equal amount of male and female athletes um, available for scholarships. Um, so uh, what is that, what that has led to is obviously an increase in, uh, in varsity women's sports, but also at certain schools like our alma mater, Josh, Wisconsin had to get rid of their baseball program so they could make, so they could, uh, so they could equal out the numbers. So they have a softball program, but not a baseball program. And so uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So that is um, a very, very common 
idea of Title IX, and uh, I would say it's kind of merged in the territory of it's kind of a myth. Um, the sports that got cut weren't making money, and yes, yes, would have they would have been cut regardless. Um, and when you look at graphs that show participation in sports among the genders, they're both going up. And men's sports are also being added. Now, sometimes it's harder to see that, especially, you know, like our alma mater, Wisconsin. They didn't really add any other sports, uh, but they cut baseball. So is that a budgetary decision or is that a Title IX compliance decision? It's tough to know. But on the whole scope of it, looking at it nationally, um, it, it seems to indicate that most schools didn't just blanket cut men's sports to get into compliance. They cut sports that weren't profitable. And uh, there was one interesting thing, I believe it was Rutgers. Uh, they cut their tennis team, their men's tennis team, saved the university $175,000. Um, next football season, they spent $175,000 for their football team to stay in hotel rooms during home games. So that money was cut and then repurposed for football. And that's actually the driving thing. A lot of the budgets that have been created by cutting sports has been funneled back to either football or occasionally men's basketball, which are the two typical breadwinners. Yeah, the revenue-producing sports. Um, you know, yeah. just to go back to Wisconsin baseball for a second, um, in their last 10 years of existence up until 1991, uh, Badger Bittman's baseball team's records were 3-13, and 6-10, 10, 6-10, and 6-7, 3-13, and 3-13, 5-11, 15-13, then 9-19, 8-20, and 6-22 in their final season. Yeah. So it's not like they were missing a whole lot once they got rid of... Uh, yeah, program. And, and like I didn't look at Wisconsin specifically, but they might have had an outside, you know, possibility. This has happened at a few schools where, um, yeah, they already had women's hockey. They had a lot of women's sports, but baseball, and then maybe the next season they magically have a men's indoor track team. Mm-hmm. So they might have cut a terrible albatross on the university and then added a cheaper sport to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, which would then still be opportunity for men athlete, male athletes, just in a different way. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, so, moving sort of uh, further away and more towards sort of the, the larger scope of Title IX, um, one of the the key provisions in in this that you, when you read the overall sort of summary of it earlier, um, was that uh, you know you mentioned that. Uh, you, know, you cannot discriminate under any for any school that was actually receiving federal financial assistance, and um, so so one of like sort of the main tenets of Title IX is that uh, you know educational programs and activities or athletics that received um, you know financial dollars must operate in this non discriminatory manner. But um, how then does uh, the sexual assault and sexual violence fall under Title IX's purview if it's uh, just about if it's supposed, if this is, if the main tenant is about, you know, the spending of money and having the equal representation. Yeah. So that is the most common idea that Title IX is just purely making sure everyone can play sports. It's really not. It's, it's the 
you know, the law is you're not subjected to discrimination under any educational program. Attending university is the educational program. So it's educational program or activity. So the idea that um, any gender, and it, it's oftentimes thought of, of, oh, well, Title IX protects women. No, it, it protects anybody. So uh, this is not a very likely scenario, but if a university had a rash of men getting raped, that also falls under the jurisdiction of Title IX because those people's educational program opportunities are being impacted. Um, so that is why at Baylor, for instance, the horrible rapes committed against women was impacting their ability to benefit from their educational opportunity. Got it. That that makes that that makes uh, a lot more sense to me now, uh, Coach. Uh, what questions do you have right now? Well, I'm just trying to kind of wrap my head around this whole because uh, there's like a whole bevy of issues when you deal with uh, you know the, the Title IX stuff and the uh, the sexual assault and sexual harassment type cases that you see come out of these institutions that are you know as you can see, by all intents and purposes, swept under the rug. And, and that's kind of a, a, a sick thing. But, um, Josh, what uh, what preventive measures do you think uh, that these schools could, could put in, um, you know, that, that could help? I, I don't want uh, to help, I guess, kind of lessen these things or make these things more, uh, you know, easier to pursue uh, criminal action against offenders uh, I'm not really sure how to, yeah. how to ask the question uh, because this is still an issue that that um, even after looking at it and thinking about it, I still can't wrap my wrap my mind around it. Yeah, so there's several um, several things to unpack. I guess the first one is uh, one of the aspects of Title IX is there's supposed to be a Title IX compliance officer, in a department um, who monitors these things and educates people on their rights and it's supposed to be a place where you can go if you feel your rights have been violated. And, uh, you know, Baylor had another one leave the other day. Uh, they, they left the job. Um, I don't know if they were forced out or, or left. I just caught the headline. I didn't have time to read the article, but uh, there's a case where a school that could really use this is having people leave. But, um, you know, when I was doing some research, I, I was wondering, you know, what do Title IX compliance officers do? Found a website laid it out on South Carolina, University of South Carolina's website. So it seems like they function for the university, but if they are having students come and report things to them, are they going to be more concerned about student or protect the, their university and their bosses. So it's a conflict of interest. It, uh, it, it's like there needs to be more uh, autonomy. You think about how the NFL has the concussion protocol and they're supposed to have independent doctors on the sideline who aren't connected to the team or the league. Uh, it seems like that might be the next step to make uh, the Title IX offices a little bit better. And then in terms of the criminal justice side, 
Uh, same thing. A lot of universities have their own police departments, but it's not the same as necessarily the Madison police or the Wisconsin state sheriff uh, when it's just a, quite frankly a couple steps up from it's a glorified rent a cop. I was going to say it's a few steps up from a rent a cop where if your only duty is to the campus, you might not be the best equipped to handle, you know, a, a scenario where someone's coming to you with allegations of, um, you know, sexual misconduct. Yeah. I mean, we've seen this on a million episodes of Law and Order SVU. <laughs> you know, the campus police are always trying to cover it up. Um, <laughs> Uh, to protect, you know, to protect the shield, or in this case, the institution. But, okay, so you talked about the compliance office, which is actually going to be my next question. Because, uh, obviously, you know, all, all major universities have some sort of Title IX officer or office of Title IX compliance. And my question was, it, you know, you, you already talked sort of about conflict of interest. What is a Title IX officer's job basically is it just to make sure like what are they checking in on what are they what what are they trying to do on a on a day-to-day basis all right well uh just for fun i bookmarked that south carolina page because it was you know easy to to read and clear and uh they listed these these are five items that compliance officers uh can do but are not limited to first is notification and education that is uh, having materials out so you know what your rights are, things like that, and training for students about their rights, things like that, notification and education. Uh, consultation, investigation, and disposition. Uh, that is where they actually investigate things potentially. Um, that's where they can receive complaints or be notified of complaints, things like that. Uh, they are supposed to do institutional monitoring and compliance assurance. That gets to this idea of making sure the university is giving those equal opportunities to both men and women. Uh, the fourth is advising the president and other university officials. So uh, this gets into the idea that, hey, Ken Starr, president of Baylor, goes to them to see what he should do. Well, it doesn't always work that way. But ideally, that's how it's supposed to do. And lastly, uh, they give an annual report to the University of President, uh, probably just kind of like a State of the Union, where they're saying, hey, this is how we're doing on Title IX stuff. Um, again, those are the five duties South Carolina lists out, uh, but they also stress that these are included but are not limited to those five items. All right. That is uh, very helpful. Um, so what, I guess then, what do you see as uh, the future for programs like Baylor or Michigan State um, that obviously have had, you know, mass systemic issues of uh, impropriety and obviously more Title IX violations than you can shake a stick at? Um, how, how does, it, how does a, a program or a school like that not just get back in the good graces of the NCAA um, but also ensure that um, this kind of thing doesn't, you know, happen again. Which, well, uh, you know, for Baylor, they, they got rid of Bryles real quick. Um, and I, I know there's still some topsy-turvy stuff at Baylor, and they're, they're far from 
rectifying their their massive transgressions, but getting rid of the coaches that totally ignore Title IX and don't give a crap about it is a great first step. So a guy like Tom Izzo said multiple players investigated for rape and, you know, seems to do the bare minimum. And uh, I just don't see that scenario getting better with a guy like Tom Izzo. And as we, you know, progress as a society – there's going to be some dinosaurs resistant to this stuff. And it's funny to say, because like I said, this was passed in 72. So uh, it shouldn't be surprising anybody, but just you guys like Tom Izzo that, that are trying to sweep this under the rug, the university needs to decide what they care about more. And frankly, coaches that continually ignore it or try to hide it and have a cover up, the cover-ups are always worse than the actual violation. And a small potato one, completely unrelated to Title IX, is that always comes to my mind is Bruce Pearl at Tennessee. At a barbecue, a player came. It was a violation. But rather than cop to it and say, yeah, at a barbecue, and some players came, Bruce Pearl denied it and tried to cover it up. And then the university had to fire him for covering stuff up. Um, so just better transparency, uh, universities swallowing their pride and getting rid of successful coaches when they need to uh, are great first steps, I think. And one of the other things we often hear about in, in, in these kinds of situation is the idea of self-imposed sanctions, whether it's, mm-hmm. you know, postseason bans, scholarship limits. Um, where, how does that come into play? Yeah, that's more of like an NCAA thing. Um, so that usually does not have something to do with Title IX, because that, that can be confusing for me. Yeah, so a, a self-imposed sanction is kind of like uh, you did something wrong. NCAA historically has put programs that have done that same thing on probation for, say, five years. And what you do is you – Go to the NCAA first before they investigate it. You pop to it and you say, hey, we're being honest uh, and we're going to not go to a bowl for three years. So you try and give yourself a little bit less of a a penalty than what the NCAA might bring down to you. Um, That would come into play for more NCAA stuff. And... Because Title IX is federal law and the NCAA, as any other institution, has to follow federal law, um, you could have potentially a Title IX violation in conjunction to an NCAA violation. But generally those um, self-imposed penalties are related to scholarship stuff. You know, hey, we we tried to pay Reggie Bush's parents off. We're going to cop to it and and say we're not going to go to a bowl for – three years, a situation like that. All right. Uh, Coach, do you have some thoughts? Yeah. um, I was doing, uh, in doing my research, I found an article uh, that was actually uh, posted about uh, two hours ago uh, or one hour ago um, by the Iowa State Daily. And they are actually mandating that all students and employees participate in a Title IX training. Um, 
and, and basically uh, what they want to accomplish from that is how to best prevent and respond to certain situations of misconduct and aid individuals who need support. So they're trying to make the students aware. Now, the penalty uh, that they're, the accountability that they're having for the students that are in place is that uh, if you have not completed this training, um, the first set of, I guess, accountability measures uh, will be held in spring of 2019 registration period, um, and they will put a hold on their registration. Well, actually, to jump off of that, uh, Coach, as a university employee for many years, uh, I had to go through Title IX training. Um, uh, in order to be paid to teach. So, and this is, uh, this happened for me both at UCLA and at Cal State Dominguez Hills, where I was formerly a professor and um, how I got the professor title, I should say. Um, and yeah, I mean, we had to go through extensive uh, courses and, um, you know, learning, you know, uh, how to report things, who we have to report things to and whatnot. And it can be, you know, it can be very questionable of, um, especially if, you know, they always, it's a, the old, you know, if you see something, say something, but who you report that to is also very important, whether you, um, cause oftentimes you'll have to report it to not only the, let's say if you see something, uh, uh, you know, going wrong in a classroom setting, um, you would, you have to report something to, you know, your department head, but also the title nine office, um, as well as often, you know, campus security or something like that. And so they are, you know, that can be, uh, you know, thorough, but also very confusing. Then you'll get conflicting reports and things like that. And it seems to me, at least like it is, um, easier, um, to sweep things under the rug that way when there's that much amount of mass confusion. Yeah. I, I can see where that would be and, and trying to figure out the right person to go tell because, you know, if something happens, you want to make sure you get it to the right person. And, uh, you know, it's all like, you know, I, I, I'm a big, you know, proponent of, of all this uh, Title IX stuff. I know some people um, are upset that certain sports are taken away because of uh, Title IX. But, you know, my, my opinion on that is that, you know, it's important for, you know, for the women to have uh, their sports too and to have their equal share and to have, you know, because, you know, college athletics is about um, young people getting opportunities to uh, further their education through the world of sports. And, you know, if, if girls can get that opportunity too, I'm all for it. Plus, you know, at, at Georgia, you know, who's going to go see wrestling or who's going to go see men's soccer, or, you know, who's going to, you know, the sports that they're really clamoring about who's, you know, who's the audience for that kind of thing. So, um, you know, I think they sacrificed the right ones, at least at, at Georgia. In some schools, you could probably argue that they didn't, but, you know, there's always people who's going to naysay about it. But, um, but yeah, that's just kind of my two cents. And, uh, you know, I saw that article and I thought it was pretty interesting um, because when I was a employee at the University of Georgia, I didn't have to do – they didn't make me do the Title IX training. So, and, it's, and, and, the, and the same at MTSU. I don't remember doing that. Uh, so, Josh, what other, you know, what else did you uh, find in your in your research that you did preparing for this? Yeah, I thought one thing that was interesting was I, I kind of just, in the back of my mind, thought that in addition to scholarships, there kind of had to be a one-to-one spending ratio, too. But uh, actually, Title IX kind of took, that into account that sports have different budgets, different needs. 
Obviously, football, you're buying a whole bunch of helmets. And uh, for basketball, you're not. And so there is um, discretionary spending where if you account for it and have a good reason why one budget is bigger than another, uh, then, you, then you're well within. So uh, universities could spend for, you know, the equipment and, you know, all the hockey pads are one budget, soccer pads are another, and it doesn't matter. Uh, that at the end of the day, maybe the men's sports receive more money or potentially the school that doesn't carry football, you know, who knows, maybe the field hockey equipment ends up being uh, a big money aspect. And, you know, I'm sure there's a couple universities where that don't have football. Maybe they actually do spend more on women's sports and that's totally fine. I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, Josh, what do you think um, with this whole other debate? um, How does it affect title nine with the whole debate of, uh, you know, paying, paying athletes in college? Yeah, so that's that's the one that I haven't found as much of like a clear-cut answer. And I think when it comes back to that law about participating in denied the benefits of, as of now they're using that phrase, denied the benefits of, to relate to scholarships. Um, I, so pay me athletes, that's going to be a tougher one. And Honestly, the the biggest hang-up so far that I've seen in terms of paying people is just so many athletic budgets are in the red. And sports generally struggle to break even um, outside of, like, you know, Alabama football brings in so much money that, as a whole, the university – athletic department is making money on it. It's kind of, um, you know, surprising. We think of this as such a big money industry, but it's the TV networks through ad revenue making money. It's, um, you know, schools getting a contract from like Nike to to, uh, give apparel to their team. So it's going to be tougher. Um, So I'm still, you know, trying to, figure out if paying players is the right way to go. Also, uh, in the short term, I think we can all agree that players should have the ability to profit off their name and their brand. And if, the, you know, if uh, Shoddy Michelle wanted to do ads for a Athens area car dealership, he totally could have. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I think that – if they can do endorsements, if they can do things, uh, I mean, it's it's a it's a very very tough subject because of the of the uh, disparity in the incomes for for these colleges and the disparity of income of having to um, take that uh, portion of the budget and say just say you take ten million dollars, well, you still got to disperse ten million dollars amongst three hundred fifty four hundred athletes. Um, and you still got to take that money and also pay the salaries of student assistants. And you got to pay, you know, you know, budgets are, you know, are not a simple thing. And it's, it, it's tough to kind of, to kind of shake out because, you know, of, of who all you've got to take care of. And I you know is, is the, is the equestrian team getting as much 
as the kicker? You know, why, why does this walk-on kid, uh, you know, what, what could justify him getting more than the uh, starting shooting guard for the women's basketball team and, and so on and so forth. So you just got to kind of weigh it out and, and just try to figure out there's, you know, there's got to be a way to just kind of build it into their scholarship of, yeah. uh, you know, this is like a cost of living budget and, you know, and, and honestly you're not going to get a, a ton out of it because we have to disperse it. So it's not really a whole lot different. Um, I, I don't think, uh, you know, paying players won't end up being as beneficial as everybody thinks because everybody just thinks, hey, we're going to give football players NFL-style contracts, and that's not really how it is because these universities are taking these athletic budgets and and pouring them into renovations for, you know, the soccer program or, you know, rebuilding the, the uh, softball stadium, you know, uh, redoing the track, you know, bringing in – uh, new seats in the football stadium, you know, uh, putting in new locker rooms for women's soccer, uh, renovating the weight room for the for the SEC arms race, you know, building and sprucing up the new indoor practice facility, you know, things like that. Uh, you know, giving money around campus, uh, budgeting and helping out your your fellow uh, campus mates, like rebuilding. Uh, chemistry labs, you know, install, you know, giving money for um, academic scholarships, paying for the newest in the medical technology for your athletic training facilities. You know, there's a lot of money that gets dispersed in different places that it's very, very difficult to, you know, to all of a sudden uh, when you haven't been budgeting for 400 athletes, Mm -hmm. the budget for 400 athletes, because that's a dramatic shift. In, yeah. your, in your budget, and I don't care what anybody says, it's not fair to pay 85 football players and not pay anybody else. Even even the uh, the non-revenue men's sports, it's not fair to not pay them either, just as it is not fair to pay the uh, female equestrian team. Yeah, and um, you know, the, the implications of Title IX with pay, it's um, you know, there's people on both sides of the aisle. I was, I was reading an interesting article from Forbes uh, where the author was kind of dismissing the concerns, saying that Title IX is based on scholarship. Uh, men's coaches, uh, you know, the football, basketball coaches um, are paid the most. And, you know, just comparing basketball to basketball, at basically every university outside of Maybe Connecticut. I haven't looked at Kevin Ollie's pay versus Gino Oriyama, but for the most part, men's basketball coach has always paid more than the women's coach. And in a court case in California that came up, that was upheld as totally fine. Um, so there has been no court case. If they did pay players, who knows? Maybe eventually uh, an athlete would say, hey, I'm not getting paid the same. That's a Title IX violation. And then it would eventually make it to the Supreme Court. But as of now, it seems like um, the idea of equal pay uh, not only wouldn't apply based on the, the most common interpretation of Title IX and what few court cases there have been, but also just um, it's kind of used, Title IX is kind of used as people that 
don't want to pay athletes and are trying to uphold this illusion of amateurism in NCAA sports uh, as a reason to block pay. Um, so that that's just something to keep in mind too. Yeah, it's always an interesting debate, and that's kind of what what's holding this thing up. And you know, honestly, I I, I think it's you know I think it sucks that these that these football players especially because so much money is generated by that sport with TV contracts that they're not getting a little piece of the pie. But you know, maybe maybe they redo the the scholarship packages and and give them a little bit of a bump. And you know, it's not going to be a, a a dramatic bump, but maybe you can work it into your cost of living scholarships and maybe you can use it to generate more scholarship money for other sports. Like baseball only gets 11 and a half scholarships to split amongst 25 players. You know, softball is somewhat similar, you know, girls equestrian, you know, they probably only get like two scholarships and the rest have to be, you know, paid, you know, fully paid. Hopefully these, hopefully these girls can get, academic scholarship type deals. I mean, I know that. So when, um, so when I was, uh, my freshman year at Wisconsin, I ran track and it was interesting because our men's track team at Wisconsin, uh, had, I think it was either six or eight scholarships, uh, available. Whereas the women's track team had, I think 16. Um, and that was, you know, just, uh, you know, a numbers thing, obviously. So, um, you know, obviously that, that comes into play there as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Josh, anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Yeah. Um, so there's, uh, an interesting website about, uh, it's called title nine for survivors, uh, .com. It, it has a good way of, you know, seeing your rights and, and seeing what's considered this sexual misconduct. So, um, you know, this applies to, to a lot of things, you know, it's not just the opportunities that we talked about, but this idea that Title IX can help protect uh, people of any gender who's um, been a victim of these things. So it's got some instances of sexual harassment, the quid pro quo idea where, you know, hey, you do this and, uh, you know, maybe I'll give you an A. That's the classic, you know, example of like the professor uh, create a hostile environment, mm-hmm. um, you know, unwelcome advances, things like that. Uh, sexual assault, the you know, idea that, um, yeah, forcible sodomy, forcible sexual intercourse, uh, molestation, all that stuff. Um, you know, the, the idea of rape is, you know, sexual assault, uh, sexual battery, um, that's also in, and then stalking too. So those are things that can be, uh, you know, brought to a Title IX office that the university then has to investigate. So, so the idea of Title IX violations. So, um, you know, someone experiences something from that previous page. It's on the university to do an investigation, things like this, and and this is where a school like. Baylor was hurt. So um, here's a big one. A Title IX violation is the survivor was discouraged from making a report. So they go to the Title IX office and they say, ah, you don't want to go to the police. Uh, the, the, that, that'll be too much of a hassle. That's a violation. You can't be told not to report a crime, things like that. Um, or if the survivor is told that they don't even have the right 
to go to the police officer. These are the violations that, that the schools are getting dinged for. Um, another one can be while the investigation is going on, they obviously don't want the victim to be intimidated by the perpetrator. So school has to provide, you know, a means, of, it's kind of like a restraining order. School has to provide a way, you know, say they have a class. They need to find a way to have those two people not be in the same classroom. If schools don't do that things, don't do things like that, that's going to be a violation. Um, so uh, things like that. That's what Baylor got dinged for. It, it wasn't just the cover-up, but it was the law is clear with things that you need to do during an investigation, you know, it, and that's, that's really where the violations come from, is not meeting these legal standards. Um, so that was something I wanted to add. And then the last one that I wanted to add is um, Title IX has done some amazing, amazing things, and I think all three of us like it. But the one thing that's always been very strange is cheerleading is not considered a sport. It's considered an activity. So this was included in Title IX um, as an aspect of some of the times where I said it was written in the 70s. And cheerleading was kind of seen as not really a, lack of a better word, like a feminist activity. It was seen as kind of backwards, like, oh, you're supporting the team, despite being unbelievably athletic. And there's been kind of a chain of events because of that. By not being considered a sport due to Title IX, uh, cheerleading doesn't have the same protections from governing bodies. Um, and as a result, the most common high school sport injury for girls is cheerleading. Because um, there's some schools don't even have mats because there's no governing body. Um, and so it's a, a very strange for, for a law that's done a lot of good, um, just a bizarre instance that the, the incredible athletic skills of cheerleaders is not considered a sport. I mean, maybe yeah. that's the next step. I think that could certainly help things, especially at uh, the youth level, because I've heard, you know, I've heard on the news and, and seen articles about, yeah, there's, there's some horror stories from prep ranks uh, of what cheerleaders sometimes experience. Yeah, it's 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 bad. I've, I've seen, you know, some, you know, they're, they're not treated all that great. They're treated as, you know, it's it's not good. The facilities are, you know, and what they have to endure is, you know, these girls are, you know, I, I dated a cheerleader in high school, so. I know I know a lot of this firsthand, but uh, my dad. Hashtag you know, humble, humble brag. Yeah, that's right. Um, my high school didn't even have cheerleaders, so. Yeah, I I know that my dad took care of uh, the cheerleaders, and they, he had a good relationship with the with the cheerleading sponsor. So they, you know, they they were able to uh, do a lot of good things um, with the cheerleaders and and help. And the cheerleaders helped the football team and worked worked great together uh, in our situation. But I've seen so many other worse situations where, you know, they're forced to find their own transportation. Uh, whereas some programs let them, you know, ride on a bus and check out a bus for them. They have to like it. Just 
and, and, and they're not, they have nobody to report to really. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, and it's definitely sport because they do all those competitions and, and things oh. like that. And, yeah, you, you can't tell me cheerleading is not a sport. I mean, it is an athletic endeavor where there's competition. Like, yeah. you know, um, it is as much a sport as, you know, um, as, as any as anything else out there is, you know, especially in the realm of, um, you know, sports that are judged, whether it's gymnastics, ice skating, whatever. Um, it's it, it's still a sport. And anyone says it's, it's not as wrong. Um, so, um, but Josh, I want to thank you for all of your uh, research and sort of guiding us through this discussion tonight. I, I really appreciate it. Um, I've learned a lot. I hope that our audience has, uh, you know, gotten some uh, new knowledge and some new takeaways about Title IX. And I'm glad we're doing this uh, in the off season, and we'll definitely be having more conversations about, um, you know, whether it's paying players, um, you know. Uh, sexual assault on campus and all of these other things, because as much as we are a football podcast and we love football, uh, there are issues um, that are bigger than the sport that surround the sport that we need to talk about. And this is clearly one of them. So, um, absolutely. And, and hopefully, hopefully, honestly, I, I hope that our next conversation about uh, things regarding our podcast tonight are more in a positive light, like highlighting different women's sports and women's athletes and, and hopefully this sexual assault epidemic will will kind of die down and go away. But I'm afraid it won't. I'm afraid we'll hear about more universities coming, you know, things coming to light at other universities that we don't expect. And Yeah, you know, it might get worse before it gets better. But I, I yeah. am a perpetual optimist, and I do believe that it will get better. So Yeah, it, it definitely will get better because, because there's awareness now, and uh, peop- there's some people that are doing the right things, and, you know, they're, they're doing the right things to places like Baylor and Michigan State now with as far as dealing with it and getting rid of the people that that uh, were involved. Um, that doesn't make me like Baylor any, any anymore, but, um, you know, at least they're trying to do something about it, and I'll, I'll, I'll give them credit there. But, you know, hopefully more, more schools will be less quick to cover it up and, and – you know, instances like this are going to happen any anytime you're in, anywhere, anytime, anytime you have a bunch of testosterone-driven athletes. You know, this this kind of thing is going to rear its ugly head. It's just uh, you know, all, doing everything you can in your power to prevent it. Uh, it's not a hundred percent preventable, um, and I understand that. But it's how you respond if and when it does happen um, is is going to be the key to all this. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for us uh, here tonight. So uh, I want to, you know, thank you, Josh, uh, for all of your hard work. And again, uh, you know, we're thinking about you and your family right now. So um, on behalf of our own offensive coordinator here in the Music City, uh, Coach Corey Burton, and our intrepid blogger from Big Ten and Counting up in Chicago, Illinois, Josh Cook, this is a professor in Nashville. Saying so long and see you next time on the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. And we did Title IX. Thanks for listening to the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. To get in touch with the show, email us at illegalmotionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at illegal underscore motion. Thank you for listening to Believe. 
You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.